Well, you know, we might as well get started, I think. So, uh, um, so uh, good evening, happy Monday, and welcome to Time to Heal, uh, A6NZ's clubhouse room to cover the future of bio and healthcare very broadly, in a loosely structured interactive discussion. Uh, for, those who might not, for those who might not know me, I'm Vijay Pandey, the founding GP of the bio group at A6NZ. Uh, and today um, we have with us the uh, bio team, uh, GP team, Vinita Argawala, Jorge Conde, Julie Yu, and Mark Andreessen. And our special guest today is Ann Wojcicki, uh, co-founder and CEO of 23andMe. Um, you know, today we'll be focusing on the discussion on her journey as an entrepreneur from the early days to how she's gotten the company to where it is today, as well as her take on where it all goes from here. Uh, so just a friendly reminder that this conversation is going to be recorded. And for those of you who are interested in catch, uh, coming up with chat or ask questions, uh, please, by doing so, you're consenting to use your words and your images in the recording related to the event as well. So, Anne, welcome. Thank you. So, I was thinking about kicking out this way. So, um, 23 and Me, as I recall, is just a little bit younger than my oldest daughter, who uh, <laughs> turned 17 this year. Uh, and uh, and so, uh, so, you know, you've seen a lot, and you're basically one of the OGs in this sort of tech plus bio space. And if you had to sort of, I'm curious for, given what you've seen, if you had to give advice to entrepreneurs today who are sort of doing it, if you had to do this today, you know, what would be different? You know, what about now is, is sort of different than the days when you started? Ooh, uh, good question. You know, when we started, um, when we started, it was so, like, we were so rebellious. Like, we were seen as so controversial. Um and, and I remember actually really clearly there was one talk I went to and people were talking about whether or not they were going to, you know, give back the genetic information to their customers. And that was really controversial when we first announced that we would do that. People would have access to the raw genome. And, um, you know, there was issues with the FDA. There was issues with, you know, genomic counselor. There was issues with everyone. And that this one panel meeting Every single person said like, oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course you should get access to your genome. And I realized, I was like, wow, like it was a really interesting moment when I was like, wow, like the, the world really changed. And, um, you know, it was actually there's a, one article that was written by the American Society of Human Genetics. And this genetic counselor it wrote the blog post and she said she's like, I remember when 23andMe launched and I was outraged. And, um, you know, I'm sitting here It was like six or seven years later. She's like, I just like, I don't quite remember what was like so outrageous. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say like the number one thing that has changed is like, there's been more acceptance about the role of the consumer in healthcare. And people kind of accept that the consumer can play a role, that they can like potentially have more information, they can take more responsibility that more can be actually around the consumer. So the advice I'd give now is like, in some ways, like to seize that opportunity. I think there's absolutely a moment where everything is changing. Like I, I, I really feel, and especially with, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this, like with this 2020 and yep. everything that changed with virtual care, it's almost like we are, we're the desert and in 10 years, there's gonna be Vegas. And yep. you have the opportunity, you have the opportunity to build it. And yep. so it really is, it's starting from almost nothing, but the role of the consumer in healthcare is so much more um, um, widely accepted. And so my opportunity more now is like how um, you don't have to fight that battle, but like really like now you have this opportunity to seize it and people should really embrace that. 
It's interesting to hear you remember the outrage because it's reverse now, right? There's reverse outrage, which is which is a good thing. It's it's good for patients, good for consumers that there would be outrage if data were not shared back with them transparently and if they weren't part of their own healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that in some ways it's still not that well done. Like if you just think about medical records, it's really hard to still get access to your medical record. And I would say, like, one thing I don't know if people realize, like, if I wanted, if I went to Stanford or if I went to any hospital system and I said, I want to do an audit of where's all, where's all my healthcare information gone? You know, there's not an audit trail the way there is like GDPR and CCPA force that with tech companies. And so I would say you, you potentially have the right, but again, if I wanted to get my medical records, it takes weeks, you know, I'm not really sure where it's all been. Um, yeah. and, you, so, and you get a DVD. Yeah, you get a DVD. It's not, it's, it's like, it's, it's not usable. Yeah. Not and, for lack and, of outrage though. <laughs> people are <yeah>. so outraged. <laughs> I think Agreed though, the infrastructure I, is missing. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I'm, I'm eager to see 23 more and more. Like how do you actually help organize people to have appropriate outrage? Because people yeah. are outraged and they're like, oh, the healthcare system's awful, but people don't necessarily know how to mobilize. Right. And that's where this paradox is, because people are empowered, but they don't know what to do. Right. So how's this going to work? Yeah, I, it's something I think a lot about is that how do you um, like something like medical records? I find it outrageous. You can't get access to them. And I had an incident where I had a friend who was, um, you know, really, you know, a day away from dying and we couldn't get his medical record. And I was trying to get him transferred. And the only thing I did was tweet. And it was that tweet that actually finally did get him transferred. Um, But I think, and he ended up dying. And in large part, I think he ended up dying because he did not get the appropriate care for days. Um, So I do think there has to be a probably a more effective way of, of mobilizing. And it's hard right now because healthcare is mostly a B2B area. So like who, do, who would consumers go and protest against? And I think one thing to think about, like I had one hospital healthcare, like IT system tell me, he's like, look, and the reality is access to health information is the bottom of my list. He's like, why is it the bottom of my list? No one makes their healthcare decision based on transferability of their data. And so if consumers actually really wanted, they almost have to say, like, I'm no longer getting care at, you know, at UCLA. I'm getting care now at UCSF because of how I can access my data. And so I think until there's actually a financial pain, no one's going to actually make a change. Well, you know, I want to get back to this, this concept of Vegas out of the desert, because that's really appealing to me. What does your version of this sort of uh, paradise look like? And I mean, what, what, what's in it? Well, I think what's, I mean, I'm obviously really biased and everything for me is in the genetics lens. Yeah. And the reason why genetics is so interesting is because you have the ability to understand what your inherent risks are. And when I think back in 2003, Francis Collins came out when the first human genome was sequenced and there was all kinds of fanfare and, and it was, you know, the statement that genetics has the opportunity to help people um, predict, prevent, and, um, and, and treat all disease. And so the idea of being able to potentially diagnose better, to be able to prevent and be able to treat is super appealing. And I think that the healthcare system 
like I think about also the controversy that we still run into today. Like if I show up at a medical center with my atrial fib report and I say, look, I'm genetically high risk for atrial fib, the doctors uniformly just turn me away. Like there's nothing like, like, I don't know what to do. The practice of medicine is not around prevention. And, and frankly, most doctors are really trained not to think of, um, you know, their, their patients as being able to change their behavior. It's kind of just sort of like the unwritten rule, like people don't change. Yeah, and you so, can't even get them to comply with your orders, with your, with your medicines. Right. So that there's kind of seen as like people don't change. They don't re- reply to anything. And I'm actually a believer. I actually think people have this opportunity to change. Like they will change their behavior. They will actually be more compliant. Like there's an opportunity to prevent but it needs to be in a different way. Like if you want someone to lose weight or you want someone to, if someone has an addiction or some other issue, it's more complicated than just pointing out the problem. Yeah. So you, and that's frankly where your phone is really valuable. Like there's a whole world that can come with behavior change and and modifying people. So when I think about the desert that's blooming, I think it's, it really has to do with a world where you can potentially prevent disease so know about your risk and that you can prevent disease and where your health is no longer about these episodic annual visits, but it's really the continuum that is strung together with your phone. And also this idea that your healthcare has to come from a one-to-one interaction with a physician, I think is dead. Mm-hmm. I think you absolutely have an opportunity to, to develop a form of healthcare that can scale that is not predicated on a one-to-one interaction with a physician. So what do we need to do to go from here to there? Like, what are the, the big missing pieces? It sounds like there's an ecosystem that's partially being developed, but that, uh, you know, are there missing pieces? Because, you know, to push back on you, there are people working on prevention. There are work, people working on uh, behavior change and driven through tech. So is this going to just, you think it's going to come together or? Well, that's uh, on- a- well, it's a great question. So the the number one reason why this is not, I think, I think that there's a barrier and why I think there's still a real risk that it won't ever happen is because no one makes money on prevention. Mm-hmm. And no one, I think, I think any healthcare entrepreneur that's out there can understand that anyone who's paying is in the business of trying to figure out what is your three-year ROI. Yeah. You have to show that there is a return on the investment that you're putting in, in, in some time in three years. So for instance, like I always thought like, why not just, you know, everyone, when they turn 18, they should have a genetic sequence and you figure out, you know, carrier status testing. Well, that's absolutely not going to ever pay off because it doesn't necessarily have a three-year ROI. Like you really only want to pay for it when you absolutely have to. So I think that the missing piece in here that I don't have the answer to is how do you actually have a system where the incentives are aligned, where prevention and keeping people healthier actually pays off? And the only systems that really have that is a single payer system or an integrated system like Intermountain, Kaiser, um, you know, Geisinger, others. So anyone who's taking on risk for, you know, an extended time period. And I think that's part of the issue too, is the insurance, you know, thinking about people in this short-term time periods doesn't allow you to do anything that's a long-term investment. Yeah, no, well said. And I think what we are seeing though, is that there are more companies starting up that want to be scalable Kaiser, whether in Medicare Advantage or other places. Uh, It's a hard business to build and it's very capital intensive, obviously. Right. And I, I would question, 
um, you know, whether or not will the consumer ever pay? That's kind of the big question to me is like, if, if you have a system that is actually more built around the best interest of the consumer, is there a way to better engage the consumer? And obviously 23andMe has made a real bet on, you know, being a direct to consumer company that engaging the consumer will be a path. But I think that's, that's something that again, looms in my mind is that you obviously care the most about yourself. No one cares as much about your health as you do. Yep. Yep. And so well, how- if you want, want to be healthier, then how do I actually engage you? Well, and then what's, so what, what do you think a solution to that is? I mean, cause, uh, it's it's even if you had let's say the pair that wanted to do that i guess it is coming up with the scalable means to do that and uh we've also seen things where people want to use ai and chatbots and other things but in the end i guess it is what you said in the beginning it's empowering the patient to be able to know what to do and to be incented to do it to understand the rewards understand the risks and then go get it done yeah i mean this is this is honestly where i i i, I kind of sh- struggle about it can you actually really innovate that much within the system? Mm. And I don't know. I mean, part of the reason why 23andMe was built the way it was built is um, because I don't believe that healthcare can innovate from within. And partly it's because you make so much money off the inefficiencies that the incentives (laughs) will never fully align. And so I think that like, even when I look at Amazon care and all these things that are happening, it's all innovation within the system, but I don't know I don't know how far it can ever really get pushed because of the, because of the financial, um, you know, pull that people have that essentially force you to make decisions that are not in you, your best interest. Well, does Amazon become Intermountain? Does 23andMe become a pay provider? I don't know. I mean, I think that's where, um, I think somebody has to, I kind of think about this. Who is it? Who's going to make money on me? you know, being 95 years old and disease free. Like essentially, if we can answer that question, then I feel like I'm willing to invest in that. But I want somebody who has that kind of long term. And frankly, that's the advantage that the NHS and Sweden and other, you know, single payer systems have. And I think that's where like, it's really interesting what's happening in the UK with, you know, the genomics programs that they're, that they're taking on they're really running with this and they have all kinds of discussions coming out now about how they're going to integrate, um, you know, disease risk scores within primary care. It's super, super interesting. So I think in some ways we might get stuck with a really antiquated system if we don't fully, you know, come up with like a whole new way. But I think the main way is like somebody needs to have a very long-term plan that, and maybe it's life insurance, like some way that it's a very long-term plan that, um, you know, where people make money off you being, you know, 85 years old and healthy. Mm-hmm. So Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, potentially. <laughs> potentially. Well, it's a long I, I, don't, I mean, honestly, like, I, I think this is where, like, I, I often, like, love pushing on, you know, people who are investing in this space. And say, like, like, I don't know, realistically, how much you can innovate from within the existing guidelines and the, the system as it is, unless you totally. And my only bet here is, like, I think I can get people to pay um, if I'm truly aligned with what's in their best interest. Yeah. Well, and yeah, as you talked about earlier, devil. you go, Vinita, go. I was going to say, to play devil's advocate, if you want to build a system that leverages personal genomics, you know, completely outside of, of the care ecosystem and that ultimately incurs the cost of undiagnosed disease or late diagnosed disease, you know, I guess 
the counter argument is that 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 may be why personal genomics has had sort of a small addressable market outside of the the healthcare system as it exists as compared to let's say what the NHS is doing and um, you know and what what nationalized healthcare systems might do so I, I might I might push back that maybe the convergence of all the factors that you're describing and is making this exactly the right time to try to build you know genomics driven medicine within healthcare as we know it today within the you know the providers and channels and payers that stand to benefit yeah, I, I still think of, like, I still look back on the atrial fib example. You know, if I look at, you know, atrial fib runs in the family. And so I can, so it's personal to us. And I can see, you know, my dad who has it. And I can see that there's actually things that you can do to potentially prevent. Um, but if you're a 20-year-old, like, is, is who's going to pay for the test to begin with? And the payoff is not going to be for potentially 50 years. So, like, what's the advice? Like, when would the the 20-year-old who potentially wants to live their life in a new way with this kind of information, you know, when do they get that information? And then how is that actually, how is that integrated? Like, that's kind of where I come back. So I think there's absolutely an opportunity to integrate genomics into healthcare delivery. And especially, and we see this happen quite a bit where people you know, learn that they have a risk of blood clotting and they have heart disease or like they, you know, something with pharmacogenetics. Uh, like there's a lot of different ways yeah. that it becomes incredibly valuable. But I also really think about the risk element is going to be, it's going to be applicable to every single person. Like that is where yeah. like you talk about Netflix. That's where every single person becomes like Netflix. Like everyone has a customized experience on day one. Well, it's interesting. What you're describing is a failure to generate evidence quickly enough in a sense, right? Because- in the AFib example, we need the data first in some kind of a study, in some kind of a trial to prove that either anticoagulation or some type of lifestyle change earlier in individuals with a genetic predisposition to AFib, but not an AFib rhythm, mm -hmm. you know, does something. And so yeah. we almost need to be able to conduct that study faster, cheaper, in a bigger population, which is where... I think the 23andMe platform to access, to actually communicate with patients is unbelievable. I can't think of another platform like it. Right. I think that that I, I do sometimes propose to my research team that we should do like a 20-year study to prove out these things. <laughs> They're like, oh boy, yeah, like, like, that's uh, really, <laughs> you're killing us. Um, but I think that like we would be really well set up. And the reality is like, if you look at you know prevention studies in the UK is amazing at doing some of these, they're really long studies. So uh, you could absolutely come up with surrogate markers and other ways to, to, to identify like in heart disease, et cetera, in other areas or diabetes and hemoglobin A1C and find ways to, to measure um, change. But I think for a lot of them, it's, it's a lifestyle. I mean, it's one thing I tell my kids every day that your health is a sum of what you've done, of how you've lived your life. So every single day matters. And so like, I, I can look at like in my 12 year old, like, does it matter if he exercises or not now? Like, we don't really know, but my, my hunch is like every, everything that you do adds up. Yeah. And so and if, it, yeah, go it, ahead. It's, it's, it's worth having, you know, th that's where I think about like, it's, you know, like in skin cancer, it's very clear looking at this, like you can show up as a 55 year old, blonde, blue eyed, freckled individual and like want to have a skin check. And like, you know, you're kind of, you know, it, it's a little bit like, what have you already done? Like there's yeah. nothing you can't undo if you spent your time in tanning beds or like spent your time getting burns. Like it's already done. 
So that's where prevention like plays such a huge role. And you know that clearly in something like skin cancer. And it's important to get people educated there. But that's where I think about every single disease area. How do you know something as clearly as that? And that's where I just, it, the system as it is, is not well set up for it. But we absolutely do need those kinds of studies. And we absolutely need to find ways of following people. And again, one of the pieces of advice, going back to your first question, one of the things I would love for people to do more and more is your phone is just so powerful. Like all kinds of, I, I love looking at all these companies that are coming. Like mm -hmm. it's so exciting what you can actually do with your phone. And this idea that every single day is a clinical trial and every day is a study, you know, and, and anyone who's ever been pregnant out there knows like you take medications that are not supposed to be for pregnant people. Like every day is like, so there's a huge opportunity with the phone. And we yeah, should, I just I, noticed I, you and Ashley joined the room. So let's bookmark the AFib conversation mm. and come back to it as <laughs> you and, to hear his yes. thoughts. Yeah, we'll, but, we'll pull them up in a little bit. That's a good idea. Uh, well, one area that I know is dear to your heart too is that we haven't gone to yet in just the last few minutes is uh, how all this can affect even the design of new therapeutics. Because I can imagine, you know, either in what you what you choose to get, how you build clinical trials, how you prescribe drugs, and all that stuff, is, is that part of the new Vegas? That's absolutely yeah. Again, if you think back on what Francis Collins said about the potential of of being able to diagnose and um, you know predict or prevent and, and treat disease how can you actually develop therapies in a more effective, more yeah, efficient but, way? But I think the pushback is if that's true, why has that not happened or has it? And we just don't hear about it. Well, a couple things. So one, there is, there's pretty good data about how using genetic information means you're over, you know, two times more likely to be successful. So if you think about one of the biggest pain points in healthcare is that it's just riddled with failures. So mm -hmm if you're twice as likely to be successful, it's actually a pretty substantial, uh, it's a meaningful number. Um, so the problem in drug discovery is it just takes a long time. So yeah. we are, and I think about like when, like we, we have one of the largest data sets out there with over 10 million customers, um, but we're just scratching the surface. So think about like how big, you know, data is that Netflix has or Google has and how they are making sense of it. So we have a, a substantial data set and we are using them. We're in a partnership now with GSK. Um, I'm really inspired by like what we can find, what we can see. But there's a we're just starting on what I think is going to be a whole new world of efficient drug discovery. And I think that's where there's all kinds of opportunities with how you're going to be able to really go from gene to function and how do you really understand what, um, you know, what, 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 what the gene means and, and that biology and, and then start to understand how could you actually potentially modulate that with a small molecule or an antibody or a gene therapy. So I think going to your question, I think it's just a matter of time, but I think yep. that's the kind of thing is like over, like someone should be documenting that well, like over, you know, the next decade, yeah. how the, is drug are, discovery going to change? We are in the middle of it. Oh, good. Great. Yeah. Well, I'm I knew concerned. I was talking to you for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see how you're documenting it. And yeah. speaking of, speaking of looking over decades, if you, we look back in time over the last decade, mm -hmm. um, I'd be fascinated to hear just your your take um, from you know the insider's perspective on you know how you know consumer genomics or personal genomics has played out you know because I remember when when Twenty Three and Me launched in the world you know for me it was like okay this is really cool this is endlessly fascinating 
the addressable market is 100% of people because everyone's got DNA and everyone's going to be super intrigued and interested in what they can learn about themselves if only they had access to their own DNA. Mm -hmm. um, but if you sort of roll the tape forward, it seems like one of the biggest killer applications for, for understanding your own genomics is ancestry. And I, I probably would, I, I know I wouldn't have predicted that 10 years ago. Um, in your mind, like what, what has been the, the sort of the, the killer app as you've, as you've gone to the market and, and engaged people with their own, uh, you know, uh, information, like what have you seen that resonates, that matters, that people come back and, and are looking for more to learn more about? Is it ancestry? Is it health? Is it other? So I would say that, that you, um, so you, you sound like almost like the early launch team when we launched our product, we're like, of course, everyone, everyone wants their genome. Like, isn't everyone just like pounding at the door, like excited to get their genetic information and do you want to peruse all the various literature and like see what that means for you. Um, so what we discovered is like that, that that market like the the reason why you potentially want to get your genome was not obvious to the majority of the world and so we absolutely like well, i always tell the story is like we launched we were the cover of the new york like front page of the new york times we were covered of wired like we had so much press and we sold probably a thousand kits that first day and then after that it kind of petered down to like 10 to 15 kits a day and I remember thinking like, oh, wow. this is not, like, this is not good. Like, <laughs> this is, this is not the, the universal market demand that we anticipated. And that's when I realized that the scientists, um, like, we all think like, this is so interesting. And, and it was just very clear. Like, it was not obvious why most people want to get access to this information. So, um, what was amazing. So again, that's part of like the hard part of being, uh, you know, an entrepreneur is like, you have to keep persevering. And for us, it was like, there's clearly something really interesting here, but it has, it's going to take time to evolve. So I, I totally agree with you. Ancestry was not on my radar. Like we always had an answer. We had an ancestry product and we had a health product, but, um, and I, and I knew like ancestry was always really fun um, and we have this dream, like my ex-husband used to say, like, oh, one day you'll connect people and they'll find family members. And we're like, oh, that's like, that was such a distant dream. And I think the things that surprised me is just how much your genetic ancestry was going to surprise people. And, and in terms how of much, finding roots that they didn't know they had. Yeah. In terms of like, there's a disconnect between what people see in the mirror and what the family lore has been and what's what your genetic ancestry says. And um, also a total distance. Like I had no idea how many people would find family members, including myself, like where we found a first cousin, like no idea just how um, how how like fascinating it would be for people and how much people would be learning about themselves. And I think what's one your, thing again, I never would have expected is that we get into the conversation on race which has been wow. like a huge area for us. Sorry, go on. Yeah, what's your favorite story there? I know I've heard you say so many interesting ones. I don't know if uh, there's one that you want to highlight here. Oh, I there's um there's so many. Um I mean, I think it's you know, this is back from the the very very early days and it also speaks to the culture of the company and how we approach science, but I had um somebody wrote in again very early on and said 
Um, you know, I've been in Silicon Valley. I've been adopted. I've been in Silicon Valley my whole life. Like I am, um, you know, like she was very successful here. She's like, I did 23 Me, and I'm fine that I'm part of the Arctic Inuit community and, you know, part of the reindeer tribe and I'm quitting my job and I'm going to move there to, um, to learn about the community. And she wrote wow. back a, a couple of years later and said, like, I've never been, um, you know, more happy. I feel connected for the first time in my life. I have a sense of like, I, I feel like I, I have my family. I'm with my people. Like I'm, I feel complete for the first time. And I took this letter to my science, my research team. And I was like, you guys, you better be right because this woman <laughs> just changed her whole life and her identity and everything is tied to her genetics. And so I didn't, I think that that was like such an important moment to me because it made me realize how much, um, you know, this information that we're providing, it's not a novelty. It's not, um, you know, your Neanderthal score can be fun and it's cocktail party, but like, this is not just a, a cocktail party conversation it's like, it's, it's your identity. It's who you are. It is looking in the mirror. It's like knowing your entire history and your background. Like I can't emphasize enough, like how much it's, it's like, it's so it's you and it's your whole past and your lineage. Um, and so it's really important. Like it really, like one of our core values in the company is lead with science. And I really like it, every aspect of the company has to follow through because behind every data point that we have, like every customer experience is so unique and so meaningful. Wow. So it's wow. really like, I, it, it, and we have every single day, every day I get a story. Like one of the, sorry, I just have to tell one other story that I just love is like one of the, um, one of my customers who wrote in who, um, who, again, she, the family asked if they could, expedite her sample because she was, again, she was in her twenties and she was on hospice and she was going to die. And again, my team, it's really hard to expedite samples and such, but she, um, we managed to like get her, her data. And her mom said like, it was such an emotional experience for her to see herself in black and white. And she ended up dying the next day, but she's like, it was, it was, it was so important for her to get that information um, before she died. And so wow. it, it's really like, I, I, again, it's, it's one of the things like I, it's what, what makes me come to the office every day. Like I, um, you know, we, we, we give some, we have a product that's incredibly meaningful for people. Yes. Yes. Well, so, and I want to do one thing, which is I want to switch gears by bringing up some people from the uh, audience to chat. And so Venkat's going to start, uh, helping drive that. Um, but, and as they come up, I got one last question for you in this sort of half, which is that I think, you know, the story of 23andMe and FDA is one of the most impressive founder comeback stories that uh, I know and uh, love to hear your take on it. Uh, I think I remember maybe even briefly talking to you about it in the middle of it. I'm talking to yeah. my Stanford colleagues like Russ Altman. Uh, Russ, yeah. uh, uh, Professor Altman with an A was one of the first people on the list of the SAB and got a lot of calls, as I recall. Uh, yep. Like what all that was like for you, you were trying to push the, the boundaries in all the good ways, but then this happens. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because in my mind, um, like we got the warning letter, we got the warning letter on a Friday and, um, you know, part of the hard thing sometimes of doing something totally new is that it like exactly the regulatory world was unclear and we had gotten lots of 
different letters. Like we had gotten a letter from the um, Department of Health of California. We'd gotten a letter from senators. We'd, there'd been hearings. Um, and we had actually spent time in the past. We'd spent time with Kessler. We'd spent time with Von Eschenbach. Like Von Eschenbach was the last one who made it really clear. Like we are not regulating you. So it was, it, it's interesting. I do this class every year at Stanford with Rob Siegel. And he always asks his students, like, did 23andMe get their warning letter because of Silicon Valley arrogance or just incompetence? And it's amazing how everyone says um, arrogance. And I always say, like, it was, wasn't. Was there, not a, was there not a third option? <laughs> no, it was only one of those two. You know, it's like it was a minimal choice for them. So um, I, you know, the, the reality is we actually, we had tried to engage and the number one thing that we made the mistake on, like I look back at my communications with the FDA and it's almost laughable. Um, so we just, we didn't, we weren't speaking the right language. I didn't necessarily know um, in a very Silicon Valley way, you know, the FDA would say, we need to see 20 samples to validate this. And we'd say, well, you know, statistically you only need 17 and here's why. And one of the first things that our head of regulatory taught us is that, you know, it, it's kind of. You need to you need to take um, the feedback you get from the FDA. It needs to be like it's a fact. It's like the DMV. When you go to the DMV, you do not negotiate. You don't like say like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom, hold my place in line, or like, hey, I don't want to take the vision test. Like, you do what they ask and you like follow the rules. And there's a similarity there. And we had, um, you know, get like it, we we were just we didn't speak the language. So when we got the letter on a Friday um, and then it was made public on a Monday, which was unusual. Um, and, and to be honest, like I didn't recognize right away what a big deal it was. And it was Kessler who actually called me and he's the one who like made it clear, like, Anne, um, I know you're not taking this seriously and you need to, like, they're really pissed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I didn't, it's interesting because it, it, it's seen as a monumental moment. It was never a question in my mind that there wasn't a path forward because everything that we we're doing, like we were really trying to find the right path forward. And I had great confidence in my product. Like I had a strong team of advisors. I felt confidence in the data quality. I felt confident in the science, um, but that there was really, it's, it was a disconnect in terms of process. So I spent a lot of time, you know, getting advice, um, talking to people. I had one FDA advisor who um, the first email I sent her, she essentially sent me an email back saying um, there was no one in, on the planet that she would rather not help than me. And, <laughs> oh, that, um, and that I had, you know, taken, um, you know, real resources from real scientists. And I just, over a series of emails, I actually got her to come into the office and we had a like very reasonable dialogue about what would need to happen. And that's kind of where um, there was a little bit of, um, you know, sometimes it's good to push. And this was an opportunity, like we really needed to listen. And we had to, um, you, know, you know, be able to say, like we had to go back to the very basics and get um, a first report approved. And we knew it was gonna be a long haul. And one of the things that we were really lucky about is that we had cash. And I think just emphasizing the companies, like there's nothing, you can't manage, <laughs> if we hadn't had cash, it would have been tough. Um, so, so again, part of, for me, it was never a question about whether or not we were going to be able to come back. It was really a question about um, finding the right people and then doing 
what the FDA asks and what the FDA wants is they want data. And we are actually very, very good at generating data. And um, we, you know, took the approach that we were going to prove out that this product was acceptable, that it, like consumers can get it, and that is highly accurate. And we um, were incredibly persistent. Yep. No, that, that advice of listening and responding and, and just persevering, uh, that mm-hmm. probably, uh, that's what gets you through it. Uh, that, that makes the most sense. That's a, such a beautiful story. Yeah. So we got external to- as an external observer of that whole thing, and I have to say, you, you, you guys, you specifically managed that balance between grit and grace in navigating through that whole thing. Because I can't imagine how scary that must have been once it did eventually dawn on you all how how serious this was. So, yeah, what an incredible entrepreneurial story. Well, I think it's a good, I, and again, even just hearing you emphasize, Avijay, it's it's an important moment to recognize when you do just need to listen and then mm-hmm. follow the instructions. Yep. And I think that there's sometimes I see like, even when I do, when I'm investing in like in, in, you know, founders or like how many, like they'll argue like, with you and it's fun to argue, but there's at times where you're just like, you're just wrong and you just need to follow. <laughs> and that's kind of what we did. 